Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. I want to tell you this morning about my first real prayer that I ever prayed to God. My first real prayer. This would have been in my eighth grade year. This was the spring of 2001. Sorry to date myself. But by real prayer, I don't mean to put down the prayers like we say at church every Sunday. I don't mean to denigrate, you know, grace before meals. Those are our important prayers. But, but the prayer I'm going to tell you about now was the first time that I, I really, really wanted something. And I turned to God and said, God, I really, really want this thing. And uh, if you could help me out, that would be wonderful. And uh, here was the prayer. The, the, the prayer is that um, I would get into the governor's school for high school. The governor's school where I grew up in Virginia in Richmond was a kind of a hoity-toity high school. It was the, the top-notch option for people who wanted to go to a, um, a prestigious high school. And to get into this high school, you had to pass an entrance exam, uh, you had to submit an application, get the teacher recommendations, and prove that you were a, a top-tier student. And as an eighth-grade kid, I was pretty frumpy. Uh, I didn't have much going for me in the looks department, frankly. Um, I, I was chubby and I had really bad acne, but so was everyone in eighth grade, so that's not a huge deal. And um, I was in all the advanced classes, and I did fairly well in school. I was part of this sort of smart kids clique. Uh, I played chess with friends during lunch. Um, I joined the technology club. I was in the public speaking club. So to get into the governor's school would have sealed my identity as the smartest of the smart, right? Uh, to get into the governor's school would prove to everyone around me I was cream of the crop. I was better than all the attractive kids and all the preppy kids with money and the athletic kids and the funny kids. If I could get into governor's school, it would prove that I was a good kid perhaps even better than my peers. So the night before I went to take the entrance exam to the governor's school, before I went to bed, I knelt down at my bedside and said my first real prayer that I had ever prayed. God, if you get me into this school, I promise I will get baptized and go to church. I had not been baptized, and my family wasn't going to church at the time. I'm not sure how I, as an eighth grader, could make that happen, but I figured I was a pretty good catch, and you know, I might dangle that out before God to see if he bit. Looking at our reading today from Genesis chapter 18, we have for us one of those real prayers of sorts. Uh, one of the first real prayers of the Old Testament. The first time a Bible person comes before God to pray for something that is a deep and meaningful and uh, close to the heart desire. It's one of the first person um, times someone comes to the Bible, uh, comes to God in the Bible and says, God, I'm concerned about the future, and I could use a little assurance here. So it's happening in our reading today from Genesis chapter 18. And if you've been in church circles for a while, you may have heard the term intercessory prayer. Um, that's just a fancy name for when we pray for someone who is not ourselves. 
So every time we do a church prayer list every week, we pray for the people. And if it's somebody who's not you, that's intercessory prayer. And, and today in our reading, we run into one of the Bible's first intercessory prayers. Because Abraham is going to come to God with a concern about the city of Sodom and God's uh, intent to judge it. And so today I hope we walk away learning something about the power of prayer and the nature of God as a result of Abraham's prayers. Uh, Where are we in the book of Genesis? Abraham has had this long-term relationship with God, and earlier on in the chapter, God shows up for an afternoon snack. But God does not show up just for the afternoon snack in that sense, because Abraham figures out that this is a sort of three travelers who are more than three travelers, and God is is there amongst the three of them, and so God um, shows up and, and Abraham rolls out the red carpet. He offers food, he offers milk, he offers meat. He rolls out and feeds these three travelers who represent the presence of God um, with a feast fit for a king. And as our reading begins, the feast has ended and Abraham is seeing off his three guests, right? Um, that he's, he's walking to the car with them. He's, he's going the first little bit of the journey with them to make sure that they haven't forgotten anything, to make sure that they're sort of appropriately sent off in a good way. And as they're sort of walking to the car, as it were, as, as Abraham is seeing off his guests, presumably they're on a high ridge and they can look off in the distance and see the city of Sodom. And with Sodom being so far off, God sort of speaks to himself and decides to clue Abraham in on the future. God says to himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. So God has a plan for Sodom, and the plan is so heavy and serious and scary that God decides, uh, he's, he's actually anxious as to whether or not he should clue Abraham in on the plan. Um, but given that Abraham will be the father of a nation, um, and given that questions of how, what does it mean to be a good, godly nation are something that Abraham and his descendants are going to wrestle with, God says, okay, I'm going to clue you in, my man. Uh, he pulls back the curtain to talk to Abraham about this city of Sodom and what exactly is going on with it. And here's what God tells him. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. The idea here is that God is setting himself up as a judge. People have been coming to him with complaints about Sodom and Gomorrah for some time now, um, and he's going to personally check on what's been happening and make a just judgment. We'll get into more of those details next week about what exactly the issues are with Sodom and Gomorrah. For now, we'll simply recognize that the judge needed to come in and see the evidence so that he could make a judgment. Abraham already has some firsthand experience with Sodom and Gomorrah. And he knows things aren't looking good for this nation. He knows that Sodom and Gomorrah are in for a divine smiting. Remember a few chapters back, we talked about in the book of Genesis this passage called the War of the Nine Kings. Abraham and the king of Sodom, after the war was over, they got into it a little bit over the spoils of war and what did the king of Sodom deserve and what did he not deserve. 
And Abraham gets so frustrated and, and he intuits that the king of Sodom is such a bad guy. He's like, look, I don't want anything to do with you, so just take your things and go. It's not worth arguing with you. It's not worth being around you. Um, you're just a wicked guy and I don't want to deal with you, so just take your things and go. And the king of Sodom does. And God has, uh, as God um, announces his plan to Abraham, Abraham asks God for clarification. He asks a clarification question. He says, God, will you intend to sweep the righteous away with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away this place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Surely, says Abraham, God wouldn't destroy the good and the bad together. So hypothetically, God, if there were, you know, like 50 righteous people in the city, uh, would you still destroy it? And God answers, well, if I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the whole city for their sake. And this begins this back and forth between Abraham and God. Okay, God, what if you find 45 people in the city? Yep, I'll spare it for 45. Okay, how about 40? It's like a reverse auction almost. Yes, I'll spare it for 40. How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? Yes, says God, I will spare the city for 10. Again, it's like this sort of cosmic reverse auction of sorts. How many good people have to live in a place before it is spared? And Abraham gets God to commit to saving the city if there are 10 good inhabitants. And the reading ends... And this interaction between Abraham and God concludes, and they both part ways. Now, what is, in essence, a conversation about God's justice in the abstract is really about something profound and close to Abraham's heart. There is, in essence, an alternative motive that Abraham has. Because Abraham knows that God is going to wipe Sodom off the face of the earth because they are profoundly wicked, um, and, and, and no doubt... Abraham says that when you get there, you're going to want to smite the place. But the questions here about how many people are there, that's not about God's justice and God's mercy. You may think that's what it's about. But what's happening below the surface here, what's really happening, is that Abraham is trying to figure out if he should be worried about one particular citizen who happens to be living in the city of Sodom. The name Lot is not mentioned at all in this passage. But you'll remember from our sermon series so far that Abraham's nephew Lot um, and Abraham, they were working together for a while, but they both their, their, their property got to be so big they couldn't share the same pastures, so they parted ways. And where did Lot go? He went into the kingdom of Sodom. So even though Abraham and Lot have been parted for decades at this point, Lot is still on Abraham's mind. You know how, like, the hurricane is bearing down and everyone's like, well, you know, it's not coming to Ligonier, but some of you are really, really anxious because you've got family in Texas or family in, in Louisiana or something? Well, in this instance, Abraham's got family in Sodom, and he is not, um, he, he's not sure what's going to happen to his nephew Lot. But he does know that Lot's a pretty righteous guy, and so he's asking God, in essence, look, how many righteous people are, going to, are you going to need to spare this place? Um, and, and he bargains God down to about 10 because he's thinking, okay, well, if God will spare it for 10, then I think Lot is going to be okay. Lot will be spared. 
So Abraham didn't really need a theological uh, dissertation about how many good people were necessary to spare a city. That wasn't the concern on Abraham's heart. What he wanted was assurance that Lot and his family would be spared um, if the divine wrath of God were to fall on the city. That's what's really happening with this prayer, this conversation with God that we have in Genesis chapter 18. We'll find out more about what the result is of his prayer next week, but I think our reading today illustrates a hard-hitting truth about our relationship with God and our life of prayer. Because sometimes our prayer to God go deeper than even we might expect or intuit on our own. It is always good for us to pray and to bring God the matters that matter most to us, but sometimes there are prayers behind the prayers. There are prayers behind the prayers. In my original prayer to God, um, it was that I would get into this really uh, prestigious high school. God bless my test-taking tomorrow so I can get into this prestigious school and I will get baptized and go to church, right? That was my actual prayer. But the prayer beneath the prayer, what I really, really wanted was not just to get into the governor's school. I wanted validation. I wanted something that I could wave in front of my friends. My real prayer was something like, God, give me this thing that will validate that I am a smarty pants with academic chops in front of all of my friends, that they will respect and admire me and actually take me seriously. Um, That wouldn't be a wrong interpretation of my prayer to get into this fancy high school. Um, And so the act of prayer is simple and easy. Um, But as the psalmist says, God knows the secrets of our heart. Let us not be surprised when we pray to God and we ask God what we think we need. And God answers us about what we actually need. That fateful Saturday in 2001, Brian, the eighth grader, took the test. And uh, a few months later, I got the results in the mail. Um, While I had done extremely well on the rest of the test, I bombed the writing portion. I received the low test score and the rejection letter together. No wait list even for young 8th grade Brian. No validation of his smarts indeed. I had prayed to God for a validation of my braininess. Instead, I got test scores and a rejection letter that proved maybe I was not so smart. I'm reminded of this famous prayer that St. Augustine recounted in his masterwork, The Confessions, right? So again, another smarty pants Christian. Um, He was this reluctant convert to Christianity, and he had this spiritual experience at age 31. Uh, and, and, And in the mix of his sort of flirtation with Christianity through his late 20s, his mother, Monica, was a Christian and, and was praying so hard for him that he might actually become a Christian. And Augustine had little intention of living a Christian life, um, and in fact, his whole kind of first half of his life was d- devoted um, to satisfying more fleshy loves, if you will. No, no kids, I can give you the, the PG-13 version today. I do that, by the way. I'm like, okay, i got to talk about some things that are a little rated R. And I'm like, okay, if the eight-year-olds are here, we could give you the PG version. Anyway, just so you're aware. Okay, so Augustine was originally from Africa, and he moved to Milan in Italy with a concubine and a child. Um, this woman was not his wife. This woman was his lover, um, and they had a child together. This is St. Augustine. And when he moved to Milan, his mother followed afterward, and they had some aristocratic in their back, some aristocracy in their background. And so Monica comes along and arranges for St. Augustine, uh, not yet a saint, to marry uh, um, into a noble family. It was an arranged marriage. 
But the, the caveat was is that he had to give up his concubine and give up his son. And so um, he does. He dismisses his concubine and his son. And this is truly a woman he, he seemed to have loved. Um, and they've been together for 14 years. And Augustine has to cut ties. He says, I've got to do this arranged marriage thing. Well, he learns more about the arranged marriage. It turns out that the, 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 the woman he is to marry is actually just a child. Um, and she has to go another couple of years before she's old enough to be married off. And Augustine says, I can't wait that long to satisfy my fleshy desires. So he gets another concubine. And then he gets this other concubine, and everyone says, no, you can't have a concubine. You're about to, about to get married. And he's like, okay, fine. And he gets rid of this other woman again. But then he's like, I can't wait uh, to satisfy my sort of fleshy desires until this girl becomes a woman. And so he um, breaks off the engagement altogether. Um, and all of this sends him into an emotional tailspin because um, his entire life, Augustine will reflect and say that all of my life has been defined by this kind of out-of-control craziness, that I can't seem to control um, my fleshy desires. And in the midst of all this, in the book of Confessions, Augustine recounts the prayer he flippantly prayed to God, that God that he didn't really believe in at the time. It was a sarcastic prayer that summed up all of his circumstances as he wrestled with lust and relationships and monogamy and marriage. He prayed to the heavens, Lord, give me chastity and continence, but not yet. Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. And at first that seems like a pretty honest prayer, doesn't it? It gets at the heart of what Augustine's real desires were. It seems like Augustine hits where his emotional state is right on the head. But there's a deeper prayer in here. For the man who was age 16, Augustine had been a slave. Since 16, Augustine will say he was a slave to his carnal passions. He writes elsewhere in the Confessions, The frenzy gripped me, and I surrendered myself entirely to lust. And the whole concubine-fiancé-concubine debacle shows a man who is able to ponder the, medical the metaphysical universe around him with unmatched brilliance, but he couldn't keep his pants on when it came to other women. Um, this was a man who was seriously broken. Augustine's prayer was not, Lord, give me chastity and continence, but not yet. Augustine's prayer was, help, my life is out of control, and I cannot save myself. That was the prayer beneath the prayer. I wonder what the prayer beneath the prayer to God is for you these days. God, um, grant me good sermon today because I want people to know about the truth of God and I want to be your servant and also I don't want to look like an idiot from the pulpit the prayer behind the prayer God I'm praying for my neighbor who is financially struggling right now please provide for them during this pandemic keep them fed and keep the, their lights on that's also God please provide for my neighbor with someone else's money because I've got my own problems right now and I'm really just not willing to part with my own money to help them. And, you know, this is really dangerous because as they say in the South, you can cross the line from meddling into preaching. But you guys know what I'm talking about. The prayer behind the prayer. God bless our politicians really means God bless the politicians that I like. God help our divided nation means God help the people who I disagree with come to see that I'm right. Um, God help our church grow it can just as easily be God um, make us famous and popular so that people will view us with high regard because we have a big church. 
I'm reminded of Jesus' parable in the New Testament where the Pharisee prays earnestly to God. God, thank you I'm not a woman. Thank you I'm not a Gentile. Thank you I'm a dude. Thank you I'm way better than the tax collector sitting on the other side of the sanctuary. And um, if the Psalms are right, the Psalms are right. If God sees the secrets of our hearts, he can see right through our prayers and right through our posturing to see what we're really asking just as he did for Abraham in our reading today. Let me conclude by giving you a couple of happy endings. The happy ending for Abraham is that Abraham's heartfelt prayer behind a prayer was answered. Next week we're going to see that even though judgment comes for Sodom, the the, the very few righteous people are not just invited to leave, but angels grab them by their wrist and drag them out of the city before God's judgment comes. And so God hears Abraham's prayer beneath his prayer and gives him an answer. And one day, St. Augustine is walking through a garden after hanging out with some Christian friends, and Augustine hears a small voice. There's no, no one else around, but he hears a child's voice whisper in his ear, take and read. And he picks up a nearby Bible, and he, he actually just finger dips, right? He just opens it up and hits a random passage. And he looks at that passage, and the first words he reads are, Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in wild debauchery or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And Augustine reads this in all of his history, in all of his brokenness, in all of his frustration, and he breaks down weeping. And he has this religious experience where he finally believes that God is good. And he is healed, and he gets baptized, and he becomes a Christian, and he embraces celibacy for the rest of his life. And he becomes, you know, the greatest theologian in the history of the Western Church. God answered Augustine's prayer. God let Augustine dig himself into a hellhole with his lustful energy, but even then, God still gave him the chastity and continence he had asked for. Let's go back to the year 2001. After receiving a humbling letter from the governor's school, stuffed with evidence that I was not so smart after all, my mother got on the phone, um, was on, my mother was at work one day and got a phone call. A number of rising high schoolers had moved out of the school district and a spot had opened up for me in the incoming class of the governor's school. They had been through the entire waiting list and they were now offering people who were initially rejected entrance into this prestigious school. I was the second person on the reject list. And so their no had now changed to yes. Would I like to go to the governor's school that fall? And God had given me the deep desire of my heart in such a way that my pride and my ego were deflated, not inflated that I was not given the opportunity to sort of preen and strut about in my smartness in front of my eighth grade peers. We had already finished middle school. It was summer at that point. God had answered my actual prayer. Yes, Brian, you can go to governor school, but he did not answer my real prayer. No, I will not let you brag and show off in front of people uh, to assuage your own middle school insecurities. And now here I am, baptized and going to church every week, telling everybody about Jesus' death and resurrection and the forgiveness of sins and God's plan to come and fix the world. The real takeaway from today's reading, my friends, is that God knows exactly what you want and answers your prayers anyway. 
knows exactly what you want and answers your prayers anyway. I'm going to leave you with these words from Michael Berg. He's a professor of theology at Lutheran College in Wisconsin, and he wrote a reflection on prayer recently that gets to the heart of the matter. He says this, Thy will be done is the most faith-filled of all the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. But let's be careful here. This does not mean we should hold back our desires. We shouldn't sanitize our words to the Father in a feeble attempt to make them sound pious and acceptable in his sight. First, he already knows what we want. So let it out. Ask for the brand new Corvette. Go ahead and ask. He already knows what you're thinking. There is no hiding your desires from him. More importantly, your prayers are not what make you acceptable in his sight. You have already been made acceptable through the blood of Christ. The first words of the Lord's Prayer is a reminder that your status of your status before God. He is Father. More than that, he is your Father. You already enjoy a relationship of forgiveness and love. You are already his daughter or son. You are already cleansed in the blood of Christ. You are already a part of the family. You are already heirs of the riches of heaven. So just let it out. Forget about your piety. There is no need to impress him. Forget about the grammar. Just speak. Don't worry if your requests are right or not. He'll give you the answer you need. Don't worry how the prayer sounds. You are not a street corner Pharisee showing off your righteousness to the world. Words of prayer are intimate words between father and child. The problem with our prayer is not that we ask too much, but that we ask too little. If God is too weak to handle our big concerns, it's as if God is too weak to handle our big concerns or as if he is too ignorant to know what we really desire. So do not, and also, he says, do not be afraid to lament or even complain. Again, he already knows what you are thinking anyway. Tell him that you are frustrated. Tell him you are disappointed. Tell him that you are mad, even mad at him. He can take it. Like a child sitting on her father's lap, pound your fist onto his chest and scream, why? And then feel his big burly arms wrap around you. Feel your face slowly pressed into his chest to muffle the cries and compassion as he tells you that it will be okay. So friends in our reading today, see the God who blesses all the politicians, even when you secretly only want your politicians to be blessed. See in our God today the God who's okay with Abraham's game of 20 questions that beat around the bush about whether or not God's going to save Lot, his nephew. See in our God today the God who welcomes us with intimacy and wants us to come to him in prayer. See in our God today, friends, a loving Father who assures us all that everything will be okay. In Jesus' name. Feel it. Oh, I got the feeling when I woke. I feel it Ow! in my soul. Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.